Hello and welcome to Craft Path, a production of Harvest Insights, where we explore the art and science of perfecting one's craft. We meet with the makers and advisors of products and services in the food and beverage world and beyond, and those noted and respected for their trade. I'm your host, Mark Juhas, on this journey of discovery. Let's get exploring together on Craft Path. Welcome back, everyone, to Craft Path. This week, we are talking with Mr. Eric Wood, who is General Manager of Venture Park Labs. We have a really engaging and energetic conversation where we talk about Venture Park Labs, and Eric Wood is the General Manager there. He is originally from Western Canada, and Eric uh, provides some initial background on his career in food and hospitality, the many places that he's been at, from restaurants, uh, helping start a brewery in Newfoundland, his extensive travels and work, and how it's applied to the position that led him to being at Venture Park Labs. We give all kinds of examples and uh, discuss what Venture Park Labs is doing in the world of emerging food brands, how they help entrepreneurs validate and further advance their businesses. We learn about concept to market sprint program that they provide as well as their incubator and accelerator space here in Toronto, as well as the facilities that they have in Calgary. Uh, Venture Park Labs was founded by Arlene Dickinson, who many of us know likely from Dragon's Den, but also many work that she's done. Venture Park um, provides a focus on food and beverage CPG and provides a well-rounded support system to understand all elements of food brands for food brands um, as an advisor uh, and as an enabler for them. We get into some interesting conversation as well about trends and fads, what leads to lasting value in good quality food products. Um, Eric mentions a little bit about Goju Chang. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it, but I'll provide it in the show notes. It's a spicy condiment from Korea. Or we talk about the classics of pizza and sort of how those continue to evolve and, and get modified. And we get into a good conversation about hot sauce as well. And we all, we, we touch on craft production versus scaling up production. And, and again, some of the services that uh, Venture Park can provide on that and some really good examples throughout. So definitely an engaging enlivened conversation that will for anyone interested in uh, understanding what can get a concept or an idea in a food product from your mind and through to actually making it become a physical reality then this shows for you so let's get right to it and here we are so welcome to craft bath and with us today I'm happy to have with us uh, Eric Wood who's the general manager at Venture Park Labs welcome Eric Nice yeah. to be here, Mark. Right nice on. chat. So here we are. So um, I'm sure we'll have many things that we can uh, explore and, and uh, discover in our conversation. And actually, Eric and I have known each other for a little while now, just under a year. Um, we worked together last summer as well with, uh, through students at the University of Guelph. So um, I just wanted to start with a little bit of background that we can to learn a little bit about um, what brought you, uh, Eric, to being now general manager at Venture Park Labs here in Toronto in the, in the uh, facility that's there. Um, so if you could tell the listeners about sort of um, how you got there and your experiences in the world of food and beverage and, and all of those things that, that led you to where you are at Venture Park Labs. Uh, sure. Great. And yeah, once again, Mark, uh, like really happy to be here and chat with you. Uh, always enjoy our chats, either official or unofficial. Um, so my, uh, yeah, my career has been definitely nonlinear. Um, 
in the sense of I've always, I've always, um, from an early age, even when I was in high school and stuff, I've always been really people focused, um, and and have and have hit that in a few different ways. So I trained as a chef. That was my my first act, I guess you could say. Um, and this is back in dating myself a bit here, but uh, went to cooking school out west uh, in the late nineties. Um, right, right before cooking became cool, <laughs> right before there was right. this like cult, this like cult of this celebrity yes. chef. And before it was really a, um, you know, I, my path, what I wanted to do was I wanted to be a hotel general mm. manager because I thought that hotel general managers were the most elegant, poised, put together people. My dad was in business. I was lucky enough to travel a lot with him. And I always saw these hotel GMs as these like, wow, what a job. Like you get to run this little world within a world. Um, and so I interviewed some people as I was thinking about my career path. And one of the hotel GMs that I met with said, if he could do it all over again, he would have mm -hmm. started in the kitchen um, because that's a world that is in and of itself uh, a different place. And a lot of people who are in the, in, in the space don't understand it. So that's where I started. Uh, and then it kind of stuck. Um, again, back back then cooking was the options where you worked in a hotel or you worked uh in a remote camp and those are their career paths and restaurants were not really mm -hmm, cool mm -hmm. yet um and so but this is so i was lucky enough to go to school there i did very well culinary competitions that sort of stuff ended up getting a great internship yeah. with walt disney world um and that was right in the 2000, 2001 period, which which many would say was sort of the birth of the mm. new American food movement, um, where you saw the food, right. food network coming out and and some of these original celebrity chefs sort of coming out and really new Amer like American and North American food mm -hmm. getting its own identity. So it was a great time to be Florida? there. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was in Florida. Um, and, and in and of itself, very cool experience because I was there during the millennium with or during the turn of the millennium with, you know, uh, they have a great college program there. I think there was 20,000. Um, no, not that many. Five, five to six thousand college students from everywhere in the world, uh, wow. every country. A lot of us away from home for the first time. Um and so this amazing cultural exchange and, you know, here I am this like quasi arrogant kid from Edmonton <laughs> who ends up being exposed to people from everywhere yeah. and learning like that, that cultural experience was just amazing. And just seeing how, you know, especially on the hospitality side, how it's universal language, how, how, how those sort of things. And that's what really drew me in was the ability to entertain and to, uh, and to nourish people, um, in multiple ways. So I stuck with the industry, you know, I, lots of stuff um, happened through the years. I, I was lucky enough to work with great partners and learn how to open restaurants um, in my early career. And, uh, up and you know, my 20, in my 20s, I opened seven wow. properties, um, which was, and I worked with great owners who really knew what they were doing and really worked, we got to work, you know, across, across Canada on some amazing projects from ultra fine dining to mm -hmm. a brewery in Newfoundland to, uh, like I opened a golf resort in the Kootenays in BC and was just able to experience like this whole, di like this amazing Canadian diaspora and, 
like ingredients and 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 food and working with people um, that had different experiences because food and hospitality is always a business mm-hmm, that attracts mm-hmm. newcomers. So even if you're working in wherever you're, you know, you're the the team that you're working with could be from right, yes. twenty different countries. Um, so you learn food cultures and 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 customs and habits, and and that's always been what started to drive me was was like enabling great work in people. Um, so I found myself really drawn yeah. to the management piece. Um, the management piece, because you, 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 you know, the craft of cooking is one thing, but, but you can really judge a chef or someone who does anything by what the product looks like when they're not there. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So I really loved like the power and possibility and, you know, everyone talks about sustainability when it comes to, like the environmental piece and that stuff, but the real way to sustain business and uh, sustain industry is by enabling people to keep it going, enabling people to rise themselves up, enabling people to um, to to dream big. So, and I love that piece, and that was something that I never really thought. That was sort of an unintentional impact of working in in kitchens and around all these people. Um, Let me ask one thing, one yeah. thing that, that is uh, interesting, particularly about this, because we'll, we'll be nonlinear, like you just said. So the idea of the concept, you mentioned all these examples, whether the brewery or, or these various places, could you think about, you know, in all those examples, the concept of the, let's say the creator or the founder of that business and how, how did that original concept um, sort of have a life that sometimes worked and sometimes I know it's like a broad stroke question, but I'm kind of interested in you know the where where the origin of something that 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 starts with the seed with usually the founder of of, of a of some sort of food or hospitality and then and then how does it play out uh, with the challenges of sure. it or, or the success? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I prided myself on being a great entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some entrepreneurial stuff, but I'm basically a business coward, um, where it comes to, I love working with other people and helping them achieve their vision and their dreams with their money. But I'm, I've had a couple of bad, bad runs. So, um, so I've always been, like, it took me a while to get used to the idea of being all in. Um, but as an entrepreneur, you get to be completely invested in someone else's idea and completely invested in, in what they want to do. So from my perspective, when I was coming in as, uh, as the, the chef or the creative director for a lot of these projects, which is the way I really right. looked at it is coming in yes. on the creative direction, because, um, a lot of people, you know, there are people that they want to do, they have a property right? or okay. they have an idea. Uh, of of how they want to do it, and it's often like we want to have the best in class craft right. brewery in Newfoundland, right? This is a great example. Um, but what that means, they need someone to fill in the blanks and color color in the lines. So they might have the outline, um, but how to get from point A to point F? Right. That's that's the sort of the work that that I've always done is sort of the help yeah. realizing people. Um, so it often comes from you know it comes from uh, looking at what you know I think it's the same thing with a restaurant yes. or a product. Is it what does the market want? You know, is and it's not so much having like this is the idea I have because there are a lot of people that that are very tied to this is the product or this is what I want to make. Mm-hmm. Right. Great. Like it's great to have this like real, like passionate vision about the way you want to do it. Right. But if nobody wants that, yes. 
what's the point, right? So it's looking at, you know, what's the community? What are people looking for? How does it make them feel? Um, so everything matters, especially restaurants are a great microcosm of this. Uh, and I think that it, my training in restaurants gave me the ability mm. to look at any business um, with this, through, a diff, through the lens of you manage every part of the experience. So from the moment someone makes the reservation, the experience right. is on, right? And then the same thing with e-commerce. From the time that someone visits your website, that's yes. the customer experience. And at every step, there's an ability for that right you know trust to go up or, or anticipation up or to fall sure, apart yeah. we right right we've all we've all been in an experience where we've bought something online yeah. and it didn't measure up or on the other side of you buy something and it's way beyond your expectations right but the people that really really excel are the people that understand all the touch super interesting um so yeah. So with me, like when I looked at all the projects that I've worked on, be it through restaurants or in marketing or in recruitment or in consulting, it was always what's the what's the intended result and what will the, what does the market what needs to happen here? Mm -hmm. And you work backwards from that and you sort of say, you know, um, like looking at uh, the the one of the, the brewery I opened in Newfoundland, no one was doing craft pizza like that wasn't a thing in mm. 2007 yet. Um, and no one was working with spent grains and we were working with spent grains and spent yeast in, in Newfoundland, which was, we were not leading the curve, right? This was not, we, we were way ahead of everything and maybe a little bit ahead of the times there. Um, but seeing things catch up, um, and it wasn't a matter of being trendy, uh, for us, it was a matter of, we were a full cycle brewery and wanted to show that like, you know, the brewmaster was a genius, an absolute mad scientist genius genius and so he got me into thinking about how we could use the spent yeast in the fermentation process of the bread and that how the bread itself is a fermented product much like beer it's just a different ratio of of like of starch to water right so when i think now of like newfoundland and they, I, uh, a brand that's really stuck out in food is mallard cottage in st john's Right? Of course. They, yeah. They've done yeah. a good job of promoting themselves. Well, certainly. I mean, and that is a great example of being like super true to vision, um, where they do what they do um, mm -hmm. and they believe in what they do, but they don't take themselves too seriously. Here is one of these, you know, here's a restaurant that is um, universally acclaimed as one of the, the more uh, exciting destinations to go to. Um, mm -hmm. But they have a cake table. Because that fits what they do, right? Not everything has mm -hmm. to be so ostentation and so aggressive. I mean, I think um, there's all this news about what's been happening with Noma in, in, in Denmark recently, how they've announced that their model is no longer sustainable, so they're going to close in two years. Well, that model was never sustainable. Really? And they created the problem. And so now they're trying to be heroes. Whereas you look mm. at people that are really true to vision, where they understand that they serve the community that they live in, and, and they don't want to just take away from it. In a nutshell. They, they want to add value to what, it. What's going on with Noma? Uh, uh, yeah. Just for the listeners, I'll put some in the show notes. Noma is super famous. Rene Redzepi is uh, that, that celebrity chef. Speaking of celebrity chefs, who's, uh, you know, made, they even made a documentary about him. But I, I didn't hear this. What's the latest, Eric, on that? Yeah, so they he's announced that they're closing because their model is unsustainable uh, and they're going to be closing in a year and a half. 
So this is both a brilliant mm. marketing campaign to say, like, you have to get to this <laughs> restaurant that everyone waits to, before we shut down. Shut. But yeah. then also saying yeah. like, oh, yes, this model of it's so expensive and the only way we're able to operate is by not paying anyone. And that's terrible. But you're still doing it. Right. You're still doing mm. it. So so yeah. when Rezepi came out, he was sort of lauded as this like genius of resurrecting or developing Nordic cuisine. And he was super lauded. And but no one looked at the real problem behind the scene is that none of these fine mm. dining, ultra fine dining restaurants, these Michelin three stars have ever made right. any money, nor will they ever. Um, and even on the backs of people not being paid. So I would say 80% of the staff in a lot of those restaurants have never been paid um, or have been paid marginally. Um, and so mm. that's a real problem. So fine dining is giving themselves a reckoning of looking at, is this a sustainable model? While all these people have gotten famous oh, wow. and rich by selling cookbooks or kimchi or whatever on whose back. So, yeah. so it's an interesting conversation about like where the, your integrity lies and, and at the core of, in my perspective, in the core of every good business and every good craft is integrity and belief in your product. Wow. Yeah. Um, so many points. And I'll, I'll come back a couple of points you mentioned there, but let's get to um, where you are now and where you, you are now as general manager. So um, if you would, Eric, please tell us um, a bit about Venture Park Labs and yeah. what uh, the team does there. I know you're here in Toronto, but there's also a team in Calgary. So maybe for the listeners a bit about Venture Park Labs. So we're a, a, you know, we're a, we're a business growth ecosystem that's focused on um, entrepreneurs in the CPG space. So that's a whole bunch of words that I'll, I'll break down. Um, so we work with emerging brands, be it uh, through our system, be it, you know, I have an idea and I wanna know if this is a business to, I've been in business for 10 years and I'm trying to commercialize into the United States or we're, you know, we're looking to raise capital um, and so we do this through a, a number of places. We have concept to market sprint program, which is for that really introductory stage person. Um, we have yes. our incubator yes. base of Toronto, which is for businesses that are in a, uh, a growth pattern. And then our accelerator is for businesses that are looking mm -hmm. for accelerated growth. Um, we worked with about, we've been around for about since about 2000. 16, 2015, 2016, we started. Um, our founder uh, is, is is quite a well-known Canadian businesswoman, one would say. Uh, yes. Arlene Dickinson, yes. notable from say. the Dragon's Den, yes. as well as, as being, yes. you know, one of those people who has, I would say, unimpeachable integrity in the Canadian business world. Um, and I think based on, on, on her and the core values of what we've built, um, what we do is we serve entrepreneurs that are in the food and wellness sector as well as some other areas as well um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and help them push their own potential. So that's through supports. Um, we give, you know, in, in the Toronto area, our incubator kitchen. Uh, is, yes, that's where you're, you're located, based yeah. out of. Yeah. Um, 20,000 yes. square feet of manufacturing space for emerging brands, because one of the biggest challenges to commercialize a product when you go from, you know, basically you want to be in farmer's markets 
or anywhere that you sell your product to the public, you need to be in an inspected facility. Um, you need to have a food handler so if you can be in an inspected facility. Right. And, and inspected facilities are few and far between, as well as, as in the beginning stages, you know, people might be mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. working out of a, of a kitchen in a bar at night. Um, for three hours a day, and then having to haul everything back and forth, and or there's a production facility in a small town in northern Ontario that they have to haul everything out to. Um, yes. So, so the but to be able to sell your product and commercialize it and go into grocery, retail, whatever, um, even even most farmers markets, you need to have this certification. Um, so we supply the space for people as well as expertise on right, how to right. create the product, how to uh, yes. market the product, how to label it, how to be safe around it, um, and 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 all of those elements. Because entrepreneurs typically are us mm-hmm. are specialists in that they've come from an industry where they know how to do something, like they're a great cook or they're a great marketer. And then they're trying to now be this business of their own and be a generalist. And that's really right. hard because... Because you need all these different skills, especially at first, right? At first, right. You you know, your margins yeah. are so thin to begin with. Um, yes. So we provide people, I think, a sounding board and space to be able to grow their businesses within a supported structure. Um, so we are a nonprofit. We're yeah. supported by... Um, you know, we have we have funding from the city of Toronto and from the federal government, as well as some great corporate sponsorships from Sobeys and Bank of Montreal, Tree of Life, um, as well as others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, we've been very successful in in what we do in that being an, an incubator or an accelerator. There are several of these programs out there. Almost every post-secondary institution has some sort of business incubator out there. Um, What's different about us is we're laser focused on consumer packaged goods. Okay. And we we have uh, what I would say is a good track record of since we started in um, 2016, we've produced over 1.6 billion dollars in economic impact, um, and that's and that's continuously rising um, as we get bigger and bigger. So. Yeah, and I and I'll share that in the show yeah. notes for people to learn more. You know, with a link, I know because that's really impressive. W- one of the things that I'd like to ask Eric that I think about as well, lot, because you know, at, at the top of our conversation today, we 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 said about you know how how food culture has really emerged in a unique way in the last let's say decade, two decades. You know, uh, with with uh, celebrity chefs, but just you know for the passion for food and and all of those things, um, is the originality of products versus like improvements to classics. So I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, people are probably always, you know, what is an idea that they're thinking about? But then you've got classic, you know, you've got classic things like, let's say, sauces or beverages, um, snacks, uh, you know, desserts in different formats, flavorings. And and I guess, um, you know, what what is sort of the 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 factors that you think lead to, you know, something getting some traction. And I know that's a hard question because there <laughs> yeah. isn't necessarily a secret, a secret answer to it. If, you know, there's no silver bullet or, or magic, magic formula, maybe it's also a process of trial and error. Um, and, you know, sometimes I, like a friend of mine who I was just talking with, like, maybe it's not always completely coming with something radically new, but it's just 
you know, a really good pizza or a really good, uh, you know, tasty uh, juice or whatever. But at the same time, we see all these elements that, that, that rise up, whether it's, um, you know, meat alternatives or plant or some sort of health aspect to it that are sort of expressions of the time and some, some, um, you know, come and some go, but what, what do you think about sort of how that looks like, you know, the, the interest or the novelty of something in, in relation to something that's maybe never changing in a classic, in a good product. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting how, how trends and waves go. Um, and there's, there's a difference between a trend, a fad and a trend, let's put it that way, where fads are sort of a thing that happens. It's a flash and then it's over. Whereas a trend, um, they tend to grow. Uh, they tend to, um, go from being, you know, in fashion to being, uh, everywhere. Right. Like you'll see things, yeah. you'll, you'll see things that, you know, okay. Five years ago is a great example. Everyone was going crazy for, you know, goji jang, Korean, a Korean chili condiment fermented delicious super popular uh popularized mostly by you know the rise of places like momofuku and chefs that were using sort of more traditional ingredients uh in non-traditional what is it again goji jang what is it sir can you say it again goji jang yes goji don't let jang. me don't okay. make me try and spell that so so <laughs> okay, so this okay. was something that people were seeking out they were trying to find it you know you find a korean grocery store that had it or or you would make it or uh and it became this super like difficult you know this this super on-trend thing um fast forward to now and and you're seeing that sort of flavor profile show up at places like burger king uh-huh. right and so that's the life cycle of it and life's yeah. like and but that's not a bad thing I mean, yeah. it means that it means that people are being exposed to it you know another great example is uh pizza is is a great example and i could probably spend an entire day just talking about pizza it's probably my greatest right. passion yeah. in life is pizza not professionally <laughs> but just in a personal matter um yes but right. the the way that people eat pizza has completely changed in the last five years and i actually think the pandemic made a huge difference in, interesting in, in right pizza. yeah yeah so people went from being you know um traditional pizzas where mm. the defining quality would be how many toppings you could get on a pizza right like how full could it be um yeah and, yeah. and, and then it went from you know you had the neighborhood pizza place and then you had the chains coming in and all the chains you know, certain chains would come in and they do something a little bit different. Um, and then, I mean, Toronto's a little bit of, a, of, of an echo chamber, I, I'm aware. You know, it doesn't necessarily happen everywhere. But um, but then mm-hmm. you saw people playing with pizza, where you got the rise of this traditional Neapolitan pizza, where it's like super thin and ultra traditional, like to the point that some of the real traditionalists wouldn't even put salt on their pizzas because that's not part of the standard. So you saw that this like DOP <laughs> of like using San Marzano tomatoes yes. and this like specific mozzarella yeah, yeah, yeah. and that became the thing. Yes, yes. And then it became right. about, you know, different styles of regional pizzas, Windsor pizza or uh, Detroit style, yeah, Chicago, Chicago D- style pizza, yeah. Detroit style yeah, pizza, yeah, yeah, yeah. New Haven, Connecticut pizza. Then there's another <laughs> type of pizza out of Chicago called tavern crust pizza. Um, and, and so you see all these sort of things and trends happen because everyone relates to pizza no one no one has 
Like you're not going to, if you, if you're trying a different type of pizza on someone, it's still pizza in the same way that like people will try. I always used to say that like people will try anything if it's in between two pieces of bread, cause it's still a sandwich. Right. Yeah. But the question, will they come back to it? Right? Well, exactly. <laughs> right. But I think people will give it a yeah. try. Like if you try, yeah. if you try to introduce someone to like, as a great example, if I tried to introduce someone to, uh, who is who has a very more like a very uh let's call it a conservative palate and i and i wanted to introduce mm. them to detroit style pizza i could say it's pizza it's just a little bit thicker crust it's different you'll like <laughs> it right? right but if i tried to introduce yeah. that same person to kanji and be like well it's kind of like a rice porridge and they'll have like fermented eggs in it <laughs> like they're probably not going to be as receptive to that but 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 they might try they might be a gateway. So you so you see gateway things. That's interesting. You see gateways to different foods happening. Like a great example is everyone sort of has this like, I don't know many people that don't have a good relationship to a burrito, right? Like a burrito is a burrito is a burrito. But <laughs> but if you give someone who's a, like a conservative person and they're used to burritos, but you said, say like, well, now we're going to do a jerk chicken burrito. That's now a gateway into jerk because they might like that flavor. Or, or you yeah. see something like a butter chicken burrito that can lead into like butter chicken on nan, or you see something like like Asian flavors in burritos. So people will will accept a format that they understand, and that's where maybe the flavor can be expanded on. That's where you can sort of here's yeah here's here's what I was because you know I'm not I'm going non-linear here with the questions and so but that's just part of the fun of this yeah so here's something whether we can I and I because uh, I know we've talked about this sauces hot sauces yeah okay so I I know that some people say well it's a saturated market we probably have like four types of hot sauces in our fridge right now here at home but like something that is tried and true let's say pizza like we're talking about mm -hmm. or or you know uh, so so what about like what hot sauces like if somebody came and said, "Hey, I want to. I have a hot sauce idea," <laughs> you know, um, how does how where do where do markets get uh, uh, you know very busy, but still you know a lot of people like them. So it's there's a, a piece of it, yeah. you know. Like I guess I'm thinking about the blue ocean thinking versus you know where there's already a crowd market, but sometimes you know pizza is. A crowded market, so hot sauces are maybe a crowded market. But if you got something that's good, you know you're going to create a space. I, anyways, Ultimate, what do you think yeah, about? Let's say right, your hot yeah. sauce. So, <laughs> uh, hot sauces are great. I, I, I could talk about hot sauces again for hours. Um, hot sauce is is an interesting thing because if you look at 15 years ago, there was Tabasco and maybe Frank's, mm -hmm. and then there was right. then there was you know, you know, different cultural condiments like. You know, I think like sambal was kind of coming into its own, and then sriracha kind of hit the scene, and sriracha kind mm. of changed the game because sriracha came in with this sort of a different flavor, a different approach to hot sauce, um, and then it opened people's minds. And then there's always been this like cult following, and there always will be a cult following to some certain food items. And hot yes. sauce is probably a great example. There are stores that just sell hot sauce. There's yes. like there's like two types of hot sauce. There's the ones that sort of enhance flavor. And there are ones that are meant to just sort of be an assault on your senses. Like, how hot can it be? <laughs> right? Right. Um, yes. And sometimes they meet in the middle. There are some amazingly good flavored hot sauces that are exceptionally high heat. Um, but there's even shows 
on television. Yes. Where they yes. they eat What's they that one? on YouTube. Yeah. What's well, and guy? it's like they have celebrities eating increasingly higher levels yes. of hot sauce. And, and if that doesn't tell you that a product has cultural cachet, I don't know what does. Um, but the thing with anything, I mean, you can talk about hot sauce or you can talk about craft beer is they have a, they, all of those hot sauces that are independent are competing against one or two companies. So it's yeah. a category and it's like a rising tide raises all ships. So it's a tough category. Uh, it's probably one of the toughest if you look at retail because the shelf space is really owned by a couple of large companies. Mm, yeah. um, you have to really build a market. Hot sauce is one of those things I think that has a lot of loyalty. Um, Interesting, right? But then, and, but then you look at the other offshoots of hot sauce, where you know where people are enjoying hot products, but then you see offshoots of that, like hot honey, really having a moment, hot mm. maple, um, flavored, you know, things that have uh, a higher heat content, spicier mustards, that sort of stuff. Um, what what about that, Eric? I think we've seen it when we you and I did a tour of uh, Italy in downtown Toronto. Um, yep. That that hot sauce company from Thunder Bay, I think. What are they? Remember when they have an interesting matte, matte finish bottles? Yep. Is it? Yeah, yeah, I know. Nice. I, yes, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, cool. I, I'm forgetting the name. I, do you remember the name? I, I'm sorry, I can't I off the top the of my head. So. Okay, I'll get. I'll, I'll I'll check it out for for listeners. So. But um, but. So that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. So, yes. so what about, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so go just ahead. I'll finish. Yeah. So with hot sauces, there's, there's all these different nuances of flavors and then there's nuanced, you know, Trinidadian hot sauces or African hot sauces. And I think people, if you like hot, this goes back to like that entry level thing that I'm talking about. If you like spicy, it might be a gateway into other flavors, other things, other chilies, that sort of stuff. So, and I think that that is really why categories like craft beer and and hot sauce continue to build traction even though mm. there's probably not there's probably not an increase in sales year over year in the hot sauce category or in the beer mm. sector but what it does mm -hmm. is there is a deg degradation of the big players market share whereas yeah. the smaller ones get a little bit of it um and i think that that's beat Heartbeat. Heartbeat. That's what it was. Yes. Heart, right. Heartbeat. Yeah. Right. They're a great player, and I mean, there are some amazing, uh, some some amazing hot sauces made in Ontario. Uh, my personal favorite being Firecracker, uh, which mm. is a Trinidadian hot sauce, um, which is just just excellent. Um, and there's a few other ones out there. And then you see things like Chili Crisp, which comes from the the East Asian diaspora, so Chinese Sichuan. Mm -hmm. um, that's really coming into its own, where you're seeing. It used to be like one note flavors would be like chili, garlic, oil. But now you're seeing people playing with it, doing more regional things, adding things to it, making it crunchier. Um, so that's one to watch. I think a chili crisp is a good example of uh, hot sauce paving the way for other heated condiments. Super. So um, let's go to um, with Venture Park Labs as a uh, – because you know, I've, I've, uh, I've been looking over the last uh, – half year at different uh, in incubators accelerators across Canada and and let's say for a company to survive let's say they've got it they've got a good product okay so that's the product at when you taste it and it's, it's delicious whatever it is if, whatever the product is what is what is it that you think venture park labs supports uh or that the role the important role uh, of a venture park labs in supporting the entrepreneur in in the process in in in, in getting their 
knowledge of the retail, the knowledge of distribution, their supply chain. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of all these fast-moving competitive parts. You yeah. know, somebody could have a great, amazingly delicious hot sauce or pizza product or or beverage, but competition is intense, whether it's, you know, having a social media presence. I know you and I have, have talked about how Midday Squares has done so well or, yeah. you know, all these, these other various companies with brilliant social media or e-commerce, you know, uh, pivoting platforms or what have you. But what's what do you see like as a really important role for Venture Park Labs in enabling and sort of, you know, providing those guideposts or mapping knowledge for the entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, entrepreneurship can be a lonely process and it can be an echo chamber. Um, and so I think it's important, no matter if it's with Venture Park or, or other groups out there that, that do that support, um, it, it's, having, it's having people to help you round out your experience base and help you see your blind spots um, and, help, and challenge you on to what your thinking is and what your, your, your process is. You know, if we look at, you know, Midday Scores is a great example of amazing marketing, but their product backs it up. Like mm -hmm. the product is good uh, and yes. that matters. So, um, and if the product wasn't good, you could market it all you want. And I don't think you would get as far, but also as good as your product is, your, your, your marketing has to stand up. Your compliance has to stand up. Your ability to right. manufacture it has to stand up um, because, you know, a kiss of death for some brands is to have a lot of buzz, but not be able to fill POs. Um, right. PO, so POs are um, purchase, purchase orders. orders. Yeah. So a company will come in and say, you know, it can be, it can be limiting if, a, you know, let's say, you know, one of the things that a lot of people find is a challenge with limited production capacity is they're serving 35 stores, let's say, and they're mm -hmm. doing, you know, they can produce let's say, say 500 units a week. Um, and they're in 35 stores and they're growing and they're growing like each store selling 10 units or whatever, right? Like it's growing really well. And then they get noticed by someone big who's like, we need 12,000 units. Right. And so the person's in the choice of, do you stop servicing all these small businesses that you've built your business on to get these big orders? Um, and, and that can be really challenging. So I think what you you can see other things, you know, also in the retail space and in the food space, a lot of the risk is on the entrepreneur where it's like mm -hmm. they, if the inventory doesn't sell, they have to take it back. They have to work with a broker. They have to work with uh, a, a distributor. There's recall stuff they have to deal with. There's There's a lot of stuff. So it's a very difficult business to navigate, especially going into it if you're not from the space and i would say 80 percent of the people that we work with um 50 to 80 uh is a very unscientific number they're not from the food space they have a great idea okay. but let's say they're a right. lawyer or an engineer they're very smart motivated savvy people in their right mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. when they're going into the space um they need help navigating the terrain um, right. because it can be challenging the language, the vocabulary of it. I mean, I yes. came into this space, not necessarily from the retail or manufacturing side. Um, and I had to learn a lot, you know, I have to learn what people would be talking about things about MOQs and I'd have to Google what that meant. Um, <laughs> what so does it mean? minimum order quantity, 
So, oh, right. 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 And it's an important <laughs> it's an important thing around uh, how you set your production and, and, and that sort of stuff. Yes. Yes. So so I think that what we do is help. Uh, and I think advisors always help. And what that's really what we try to be as an advisor and an enabler. We like to help people push their own potential. So we're always striving for the better of our entrepreneurs and, and seeing how we can help. And I, I think that we do um, we do a service to people by pointing out their blind spots. Um, they're in a supported environment. They're around other entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. that likely is the largest benefit is being around a group of other people that are facing the same issues. So you can say, um, I'm having an issue with this lid supplier. And there, and other people will be like, oh, I have a lid supplier. Or you know, we know someone that does that. Or we've been working with these people. Or we got a quote from them. Um, so having that community. Having that 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 ecosystem to to grow within is super important, um, and so we work with people on everything from you know as as good as your marketing is, as good as your product is. If you can't do the food safety and the compliance piece, you're done, right? Like you 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 have to be able to look at the whole picture, and and I think that's where the support of being in an incubator or an accelerator or any of those things really comes in is that you you gain this community of of knowledgeable people that are invested in your success. Um, now with us, we there are other accelerators and incubators and such out there. Some of them are nonprofits, some of them are for profits, some of them are right. run by venture by firms. We yes. don't take equity in a business. It's not mm-hmm, part of mm-hmm. the part of the deal. Like you don't have to when you join us you don't have to give up shares or anything like that. We don't we don't take claim at anyone's IP. Um, so so we have the skin that we have in the game is seeing you successful because that's mm-hmm. our business is enabling entrepreneurs, not necessarily the individual transaction. And I think that's super important is being having relationships within the business community that are not just transactional. Where right. it's like, you know, a rise as I said, like we believe in Canadian CPG. Um, mm-hmm. We're a goods, we're a commodities producing country, but have often sent our ingredients outside of the country mm-hmm. to then be processed to buy back. And we really want to change that equation. So, so here, here's a, a, a question. Speaking of like Canadian brands and let's say Canadian CPG, and and craft versus the scale of a product. So you've got you've got now I think a trend towards clean labels and healthier ingredients. Um and I'm wondering maybe if you have, you know, some thoughts on, you know, when when a, a product let's say gets initially conceptualized then it has certain ingredients that they're using, but if they want to meet a larger order, let's say, then maybe the pressure is on that that food CPG or beverage to change their ingredients because, uh, you know, there's price competition as well all the time for, you know, can you buy, uh, you know, this hot sauce or this beverage for X dollar versus X dollar. So there might be pressure on the food entrepreneurs. Hey, if we, if you're going to be able to meet the orders for this grocer, you, we have to think about uh, a certain price point. And so sometimes that maybe is process innovation versus the product. But I, I guess my, my, I've thought about this a lot is, is when something is, is prides itself on on let's say a craft or artisan, and can it scale and still maintain some of those ingredient pressures? The irony as well, I find that is interesting right now in in larger um, products. Let's say craft. Let's say craft dinner, for example. Is I think even maybe like 10, 15 years ago, they very quietly changed their ingredients 
to go to more, more natural uh, ingredients. So uh, maybe a bit on that, Eric, like how you see large scale brands that are in grocers, let's say across Canada, even across North America versus these these up and coming, you know, really unique and innovative craft brands that we're talking about that probably come out of Venture Park Labs and how they yeah. sort of meet, meet that balance. Okay, well, so this is a, that's a, the biggest question in the world, <laughs> okay. right? So, um, so let me start by saying that just because something's a big manufactured product, manufactured by a big company, that doesn't mean the quality is lower. And there's there, mm. there's often a perception that the smaller the manufacturer, the higher the quality, and, and that that tracks in a lot of things. You know, you see like there's that artisan handmade approach to it, but there are certain things that you know like craft brewing like brewing is a great example of there are some major brewers that make incredible product yes uh, that has nuances and all these things to it because of their batch and there are some super micro batch breweries that make like bad beer <laughs> bad beer right <laughs> yeah. and but there's always a market for something right so there's mm. you know if you look at um and that's an interesting point you make about the larger the larger companies quietly moving towards more natural ingredients and stuff because there's there is within some sectors of people that are turned off by the idea of this like being banged over the head by natural organic keto that mm -hmm. sort of stuff um we see it a lot where a lot of emerging products typically would gauge towards a sort of a more natural or a more um trendy pro like a tr like the things that are happening keto friendly this sort of stuff but you can make so many claims that you can actually alienate certain people like there are certain products out there that are naturally vegan right and and or naturally keto and and they just are and they might not be marketed as keto uh, it doesn't hurt to say it but if you hit people over the head sometimes with certain buzzwords um no matter how true they are there's a market for every one of those things but if you try to be everything to everyone you can kind of sometimes silo yourself um whereas some people that are vegans wouldn't eat keto friendly stuff because or, or vice versa right yes. Yes. so um so as products scale they have to make efficiencies mm -hmm, you know when mm -hmm. you're yes. when you're used to buying you know let's say you're buying a product that is made with a meat and you're used to buying it from a premium butcher shop because uh, you can get scrap and they can't meet your supply as you scale up so mm -hmm. you have to make efficiencies and that's where innovation comes in yes. in figuring out how to figure out the blend and we have people that might have let's say you're making a burger and we'll ask them like what's your fat content and they don't know because they've mm. just been making it with this meat and it's nice. good. But when you get scale it up, you have to yes. start thinking about, yes. you know, what's your fat content? What's the, the specific sodium content? All of these things that, that sound really like dry and scientific and sterile, but are just a different way of interpreting how you make the yes. product. Yes, food so science. So you can make science. very yeah. good. It's food science, but often it's not like food science gets a bad rap as being like a bunch of people with chemicals yes. and that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's just understanding how food works. Formulations, um, food formulations. For, the formulation piece, right? Yeah. yeah. So so you can scale up and maintain the same level of quality. But sometimes as you scale up, you need to make you, you, people do make efficiencies that can improve their product, that can improve their sales, can improve the efficiency that they might not have done. Um, 
it, because like necessity is always the mother of invention, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So typically what we see a lot of times is people making that that shift in between self-production and working with a co-packer or a co-manufacturer. That can be the biggest challenge because a lot of the co-manufacturers may not want to do the same process that right. you've been doing. right. And people get stuck there because they're like, well, I've always cooked it at this temperature for this amount of time. But they want to cook it for at this temperature for this amount of time. The end result might be the same, right? And I guess if you're producing like 100 liters versus 1,000 liters, there's going to be chemical reactions that are different, right? There's going to be differences, right? So you have to understand that it's not like you just go 10 times your recipe. I don't know how many people out there have ever tried to make, you know, you have a recipe that works and you try and go 10 times it. Yeah. Well, well, that's one thing. Try and go a hundred thousand times it, and then you look at what you're talking about when you commercialize a product, because yeah. you're typically not going from a hundred liters to a thousand liters. Typically, you're going from a hundred liters to sixteen thousand. So, so it's a big jump. Yeah. Um, and that requires time, testing, um, and and you have to be able to make compromises in the way that you do it to maybe achieve the same result. And that can be really, really hard for people who, you know, separating your product from your person, especially in a world now where we live in social media marketing, Mm -hmm. where so many people who are entrepreneurs, maybe they're sole operators, or it's a couple that produces something, they are their brand. So it becomes so personal to them that they can't sometimes Mm. make, uh, let's call it, reasoned decisions yeah because it's too personal so you have to look at it as like this is the business this is what's good for the business this is what's good for the product that's why you need the entrepreneurs like you (laughs) right so yeah exactly well or or someone you need an advisor or you need to be able to build that have a little bit of altitude Mm. from it to be able to say you know my mom always used to also say something when uh i was in like getting in trouble and I was like losing my mind. She'd say, is this the hill you want to die on? And, <laughs> yeah. and it's a good, and good, it good advice from moms. Yeah. Right. And it tracks in this one. It's like, it, it does this matter, mm. right? Does this matter enough to be this stuck on it? Or can we just move forward? You know, that can happen when someone's like, I've been buying my tomatoes from this guy for this long and he can't supply yeah. me anymore. So I need to buy them from someone else. And they don't know what to do. So right. you, just, you just do it. It's interesting. And you figure it out. And that's and that's a part of it. And and I think it, it, you know you're right as well. Like some of these um, applications or technologies or, or uh, processes are are really um, creative now to um, be able to keep freshness or to pack something. Uh, the first one that comes to mind because and I I've never met them, but I'm I'm interested in what they're doing. Maybe you've heard of them, Eric. Is a uh, crafty ramen. They're they're getting a lot of attention now. They're actually going to be opening up a a shop uh, here in Toronto uh, pretty soon. And they've, from what I know, and just initially, they have this packaged ramen um, thing that looks really kind of cool and. Uh, and I think they're doing a good job of promoting it, but it's it's something that you could take out too. So they've sort of adjusted the classic there. You know, we were talking about pizza earlier, just the classic ramen as as a as a soup as a snack, and now they've sort of packaged it in a really creative way too. Uh, this is the fourth conversation I've had about crafty ramen this week, so it's funny. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, you 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 build a better mousetrap, and yeah. that's how that's how people succeed is they they find something that works better or. Uh, you solve a problem that people have out there. And I mean, the problem 
with ramen or pho or any of those soups has always been they don't necessarily travel well yeah. if you get takeout from a restaurant. So mm. how do you make the experience at home better? Um, and we saw that through the pandemic. This, you know, pandemic was the great, the greatest amount of innovation in takeout that we've ever seen. Right, right. Whereas where we saw meal kits changing. Yes. Um, and and what's really interesting, this is an interesting fringe benefit around the meal kit side, is that a lot of the meal kit companies aren't necessarily doing very well mm. because people learned how to cook. They taught them how to cook. Interesting, right? Right. So people now know that instead of having to buy their meal kit from XYZ, they know how to buy groceries. And they can get good groceries delivered. And then they can produce that meal again. Mm. Um, so that's actually like a funny, I, it's a funny sort of fringe benefit of these people built a category. And because people didn't know how to cook, people weren't cooking at home. Um, so they started these companies that would facilitate that, and make it easier. But then when people got stuck at home during the pandemic, they had time to learn how to do things. You know, that's why we had historic shortages in yeast because people started making bread. Mm. Um, so, so people have taught themselves things. And I think that as a business person, you have to look at where the market is and where yeah. it's going. That's so, right. smart. So people have learned how to cook. People have more of an interest in cooking at home. They have more of an interest in producing the product with their own hands. So how do you enable that? How do you tap into what they want? That's the next solutions. That's awesome. So Eric, um, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, like all our conversations. Um, maybe one day, if you want to, we'd like to have you back. Uh, but here's here's a couple um um, questions sort of sort of to round out our show for today. Yeah. Um, what do you see as upcoming and and you sort of mentioned in bits and pieces throughout our chat today, but what do you see as sort of in the next couple years, uh, things that you see in 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 CPG that you think are 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 really interesting and that will sort of make a, an influence and and what's next for Venture Park Labs? So two parts there. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm going to peer into my crystal ball here. Okay. Um, I, I think we're going to continue to see a rise of like specialized um, regional foods. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a great example is a couple months back, the Google doodle of the day was celebrating Jollof rice, which is an African rice dish. Okay. Um, and, and that kind of came out of nowhere. And now we're, I've seen, I, I have a product that's produced within Venture Park that is a Jollof rice base. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I've seen other things coming up and I've seen it on menus. So so this is something that kind of wasn't on the collective conscious years ago and now it is. Um, we're seeing things like ultra regional. It used to be you went for Chinese food, mm. uh, but now there's Sichuan and, and this and this. Mm. We're going to see that, that, that dig out even further where okay. you see, you know, we've even seen that within the Caribbean's food set in Toronto. It's always been there where there's Jamaican restaurants, but there's Guyanese restaurants mm-hmm. and there's Trinidadian and there's yes. different different stuff. I think we're going to see more of that. Um, some some more interest in specialized foods coming out of Europe, um, specialized food cultures, that sort of stuff. Also Africa, South America, those sort of products. Yeah. So not just to serve the different uh, people that would live within the, the countries, but also people's pr- palates are broadening. So uh, new flavors, new exciting ingredients, things coming out of places that we haven't seen, alternate starches. Um, I don't think we're done with alternate proteins. I think that those are are going to become a little bit more approachable as opposed to being very lab-oriented. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And the flavors and all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that 
Um, there's a few sectors, you know, I think we're going to see with everything, there's always a point where there's so much of it, it's overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So we'll see some 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 concentration, I think, especially around the beverage sector, around just... flavored sparkling waters and that sort of stuff. You can see less variety, but higher quality. Mm. Um, so I, that's sort of what I kind of see on the horizon. Okay. Um, and what's next for for Venture Park right, is, yeah. is is we're we're growing exponentially. Um, we're launching some new programs, launching a, a larger national reach. We already serve a national population um, with focuses in Western Canada and in Eastern Canada of Toronto um, and Calgary in Western Canada. We're looking to broaden that. Uh, we're looking ahead to the demand for what we do around having. Uh, flexible space for people to work in is growing so we are looking ahead to be how do we expand our footprint mm. um how do we get more involved in in the community of food and how do we elevate canadian cpg um so you know yeah those are some big questions to answer that we're working on internally and and really looking to see how um the canadian cpg food and wellness market can shine um, and how we can elevate us on a, on a world stage. So lots lots of exciting things to come. Uh, lots of exciting stuff within what we do, and we're we're excited about uh, Canadian entrepreneurship every day. So awesome. Well, lots of good um, ideas and and pieces of good good uh, conversation in there for sure for for the listeners. I've enjoyed it a lot. So um, as always, Eric, thank you for for your time today for this. And this is a lot of fun. I'll provide uh, listeners all the details and show notes, some of the references that we made to various things. And um, and uh, thanks. All right. Thanks, Mark. Always a pleasure. <laughs>